All right, everybody. Hello. Welcome to the second episode of the JDO Show Relaunch. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show we are discussing Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed. Could potentially be the first part of a two-parter. We'll have to see how far Scott and I get. (laughs) Uh, let me introduce our guests. So today I have on my very good friend, Scott Adlerberg, whom uh, I'm sure a lot of you listening to this know Scott already, but if you don't, Scott is the author of Graveyard Love and Jack Waters. He also holds hosts the uh, Real to Real Film Talks in uh, Bryant Park every summer. In, mm-hmm. uh, that's in Manhattan, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, he also has an article coming out here soon on lithub.com about... Uh, about Ishmael Reed. Is that correct? Did I get that, that is right? Correct. On, and Crime Reads, which is part of LitHub, on, uh, on Ishmael Reed and on uh, a certain aspect of Mumbo Jumbo. There's even a crime uh, sort of detective novel aspect to the book. And I'll, I went into a lot of detail on it in, in the piece. It'll be out soon. So Perfect. after this, Excellent. people may want to look for that. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting article, I think. So I want to get started with how we came to discuss this particular novel. I believe mm. you had mentioned it uh, to me in passing because for those of you who don't know, Scott and I talk at length on the phone. <laughs> uh, we're getting up to twice a week now. It's <laughs> pretty extensive conversations about all manner of things that are not right. fit podcasts um, and some that are. So you had mentioned this book several times and um, – I can't remember the exact context that Ishmael Reed came up in, but you said you got to read this book. And since I had begun to approach this podcast as something where I analyze a book every week rather than just kind of have a normal sort of conversation, mm-hmm. uh, I thought Mumbo Jumbo would be a great one. And, you know, you had recommended it to me and recommended it to me. And then I started reading <laughs> and sort of right off the bat, so we have a, a main character, Papa Laba, who is a uh, voodoo priest. Uh, kind of a voodoo priest. He, he calls himself kind of an occult sort of detective. Right. Right. Uh, and so you get into the world of the book, and there's this kind of mind virus. So it's based in the 1920s in New York, uh, and there's this mind virus called Jess Grew mm-hmm. that is sweeping the nation. And what it does is people who become infected with Jess Grew become, uh, I guess, cool, you could say. <laughs> they start could, to do that's, things. Yeah, that's one way. You could put, that's definitely true. You could put it that way. They, they start become, they, they dance. start dancing yeah. a lot. Right. 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 And so basically this thing that's sweeping the nation becomes a problem for uh, American secret societies, amongst right. whom and are, it's, it's – got to should point out that the Jess Grew – According to the book, it's in the, set in the 20s, the Roaring 20s. Warren Harding is the president. Has uh, apparently appeared before in the United States. In so 1890. In yeah. the 1890s, which was just around the time, coincidentally or not, ragtime was becoming popular. It always seems to pop, and it seems to have some connection with New Orleans and maybe, you know, the sort of black population in New Orleans and the people who practice Vodun and believe in many gods. There's mm-hmm. a connection maybe with Haiti, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So it's got this sort of nebulous kind of feel to it, but that's sort of where it's kind of when it pops up in the 20s. It's not the first time, exactly. Right, right. So actually, before I move on with the rest of the plot, let's talk a little bit more about Jess Grew, right? Because mm-hmm. I think you had a nice summary there. But essentially... Jess Grew is not just music, it's also speech. And right. uh, and it's not just speech, it's also, uh, you know, black letters, it's poetry, it's it's all, it's, ba- it's essentially black culture, is how I understood mm. it. It's this kind of untouched um, by, it's hard to not use the language of the novel, because I almost said untouched by the Atonists. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which we, I guess we could get to here in a little bit as well, but it's essentially that kind, this kind of element of sort of soulfulness that runs through, uh, particularly African American cultures that's beginning to infect primarily through music, but also through other works of art. Uh, other works of art, and it seems like the the actual phrase does have a real, you know, derivation. It, um, I'm, I mean, I'm look, I'm have the book with me now, so I'm just looking at this, but he quotes in the beginning uh one of the sort of epigraphs 
um, James Weldon Johnson, great poet, black, you know, African-American poet. And uh, the epigraph says, we appropriated about the last one of the Jess Grew songs. Mm. It was a song which had been sung for years all through the South. The words were unprintable, but the tune was irresistible and belonged to nobody, which mm -hmm. kind of sums up kind of like what Jess Grew is. It's, it's kind of like hard to define. And yeah. like he said, the words are unprintable. It's not something you could just say, this is what it is, but it's irresistible. And the other thing is that's important to note is even though it kind of it definitely seems to derive or does derive from African-American culture, it's not something that only African-Americans can, can buy into, can, mm -hmm. can, right. can, can, you know, ascribe to, can use, um, which is one reason the Atonists, and we'll get into that later, what they are, and white people fear it because it's not something that's going to be confined to the black ghetto. It's going to spread. That's <laughs> you know? right. That's right. And I think that when you said that it's nebulous, that hits the nail on the head because it takes this entire 200-something uh, page novel to sort of get your head around what Jess Grew is. Mm. As a matter of fact, it kind of takes the whole novel to get your head around what exactly is happening. It takes the whole novel and a rather extensive uh segue into Egyptian mythology to sort of understand the entirety of what's going on. Right. But and the, the but, Egyptian mythology is, you know, a very it's that I that 40 pages of Egyptian mythology as Ishmael represents it, I thought it was one of the best things I've ever read. It's not exact he he reinvents Egyptian mythology to be honest. He does. To be honest. Yes, he does. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. He does. And I've oh man. It's going to be so hard not to jump around, but let's talk <laughs> about that. Let's talk about the way that the book is written, because I think that people who are listening to this podcast will find this interesting. Um, I did a little looking on Amazon, and I looked mm -hmm. at the at the one-star reviews of this, mm -hmm. and this is one of those rare cases where... So there's one person on Amazon who did not like this book because the book arrived to him in poor condition, which you'll always okay. find. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the rest of the negative reviews all had to do, and I hate to sort of um, simplify it in this way, but it was people who were kind of too stupid to get it. It was, it was <laughs> yeah. people who were just like, I don't get what's going on in this book. I'm so confused. Characters pop up. They disappear. So well, I'll hand yeah. the ball over to you here. Can you kind of describe the structure Okay, book. I think that's, yeah, you're right. We should start with that. I think that's important because to begin with, the book was written, it's Ishmael Reed's third novel, and he, it was published in 1972. Okay, he'd written two books before that. And published two books, two novels before that. And that's, that's important. It's basically, you know, you read it now, it, seem, it may seem strange. I mean, it is a strange novel, but it's definitely right in the tradition of that time a great postmodern novel. There's no other way to describe it. Mm -hmm. For people who like or read Thomas Pynchon, everyone else we're going to name is white. So, I mean, that's one thing where Ishmael Reed really sticks out. But yep. Thomas Pynchon or Donald Barthlamy or John Barth or Robert Coover, that generation of writers, if you happen to like those people, Tom Robbins to, to an extent. Um, and I loved, I grew up on those writers. I loved those writers. He, it, this is absolute. So basically... It's not a novel that in any way is a social realist novel. It's partly a satire. It's a very much a satire. The characters have ridiculous names like Biff Muscle White. It's a very you funny know, book. Yeah. It's a very, very, well, first of all, we should say that it's a hilarious book. It's really a hysterical book. Um, the characters are not three-dimensional characters. So don't come to this book expecting social realism, depth of character, straightforward plot, a, B, C, linear plotting, whether it's twist or there's a first act. And it's not that kind of book at no. all. It, may, it wouldn't even try to be. And it rips, kind of at times even rips into those kind of books. It's a postmodern really novel. It does. It plays with the, plays with, is very playful and doesn't have a pretense. And it also jumps around in time. There are a lot of anachronisms in the book. Total right. anachronisms that have not, yeah. you know, it's set in the 20s, but then he starts talking about things that, that are happening in the 70s and the 60s. And I know you you read the, uh, you heard the audible version, but if you read the book, it has a lot of pictures in it. It's kind of partly a graphic novel. It's a little ahead of its time in that way. And a lot of the photos have nothing to do, you know, logically with what's happening in the plot. It'll show, 
he'll show black militants in the 60s after we just talked about something that happened in the 20s. That those That's are a so lot of the photos. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, that is one major thing that when I told you I was listening to the audiobook, you 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 were like that will be very interesting to see the differences there because what I am grateful that I listened to the audiobook because mm. I think what I got was the straight text. And mm-hmm. I think that everything that you're talking about is very interesting. And of course, I've already ordered the print version on Amazon. It'll be arriving at my new apartment shortly. But <laughs> um, but I'm I'm kind of grateful that I was able to get just the 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 text. And mm-hmm. in an audiobook, they also they don't really they don't give they don't pause for breath when they move on to a new section. Mm-hmm. So there are these great points where, you know, where uh, Reed will leave notes at the end of chapters or there yeah, will be right. kind of newspaper headlines and they all sort of run together. And it was it was a very interesting listening experience to be like, okay, cool. I'm in a different headspace now. I'm I've, <laughs> I'm being shown something else. I don't know what it is yet. He goes so far as to do that, I think, with characters, though, too. I think uh, he breaks a rule that I normally ding people on when I edit manuscripts where he won't mm-hmm. tell you who's talking for a very long time. Oh, and he does that. You, yeah, no, and then I, you find yeah, out later yeah. on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's a, but it, it's a very, it's a, it's a very, it, but to say all that, it's also not a difficult novel. It's not difficult to read at all or listen no, to in no. my case. I, no, I, I agree with you. First of all, it's very funny. So that always makes things easier. It's not very, it's not long. It's not a very, and it's not in that sense, it's a challenging novel. You really have to engage with it, but it's not a difficult novel. It's not an off-putting novel. Um, I think just to give a little background to you know, just the la- like one, one last thing, I think it is because I think it's worth noting. It came out in 1972. Ishmael Reed is still alive. He's 81 years old. He's still writing. He's written a number of novels. He's also a great essayist. He really mm-hmm. is a great essayist. Mm-hmm. Re- really, he's written a lot of essays, books, collections of essays. Um, this is a book that's never been out of print since it came out, ever. Mm-hmm. Some of his other books have come and gone out of print like most books. This has never been out of print. uh, Thomas Pynchon name drops Ishmael Reed by name in Gravity's Rainbow for Pynchon fans. He has a whole thing about secret societies or something. And then he actually says in the text in Gravity's Rainbow, check out Ishmael Reed. He knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. That's amazing. I did not know that. That's fucking so cool. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> That's so cool. It's amazing. And what's his name? Who's the guy? We talked about this recently. Who's the guy who just died, Mr. White? You know, the so-called white male, the great white male critic. Uh, um, oh, gosh. You know who I'm talking about, who just died. Uh, yeah. He died a few months ago. Everybody was talking about him. He is, you know, the, the Western canon. And uh, oh, gosh, I don't know. It's. I, I wish I could remember. It's slipping my mind. But maybe, uh, uh, maybe anyway, I can... Maybe I can find it and link yeah, it or something. Like, I'll, fi- I'll find it. But anyway, um, in his even in his um, 500 greatest books of Western civilization, and most of them are white males. He has some women in there too. He mentions this book as one of the as one of the absolute essential texts of Western civilization of the Western right. canon. Right. You know. So it's, right. so it's a book that has a real at this point. This will be a book that Ishmael is remembered by. I think that's fair to say. You know. Do you? And and I know I kind of started the plot and then I dropped it off and then uh, st- we started talking about other things. But I feel like can you talk a little bit about Ishmael Reed biographically? Do you, do you know enough to kind of? I, I'm assuming you do because you wrote this this article. But yeah, no. I, I can mean, you I tell know, us more about the guy? I know a little bit about him. He grew up, I think, primarily in. Um, I think it was. I think it's Oakland. Uh, it's either Buffalo, I forgot if it's Buffalo or Oakland, but he he basically started in the um, started his career in the 60s. And he was very big with a certain kind of movement called the um, kind of formulated this theory called the sort of neo hoodoo movement. Okay. He was a poet and uh, basically he sought, you know, he always sought to sort of. Um, he grew up basically in Buffalo. I'm just remembering that. Yeah. He went to the yeah. University of Buffalo, and then he, he later settled you know, in Oakland, and he taught for many years, like 30 years, a long, long time in Berkeley, Berkeley, California, mm, okay. at the University yeah. of Berkeley. So, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, but, he was in Berkeley when he wrote this book because the book ends with an epigraph that's signed from Berkeley. So right. he was he was there in the 70s, so he's right. got to have been there forever. And I think he didn't he write a memoir about walking around Oakland? 
I think I yeah, saw yeah. that while I was perusing. Right, yeah. So basically, like full disclosure, I have uh, currently purchased about seven Ishmael Reed books that are on the way uh, <laughs> because I'm doing a deep dive. Also, side note, the critic is Harold Bloom. Harold Bloom, right. right yeah. That's it. Um, so, I mean, I was impressed when I read that. Harold, you know, Harold Bloom is, I mean, might be a little over-exaggerated. It's not all white there. But when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, even Harold Bloom. Like, recognized yeah, the brilliance of yeah, this book. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. undeniable. Okay, right. cool. So to get back to the plot, so there is this thing called Jess Grew that is uh, possessing people and making them do crazy things like mm-hmm. dance and use uh, and slang. And, and enjoy, actually enjoy life. Actually enjoy life. So that does not sit well with the bad guys. So right. the bad guys here um, are essentially Knights Templars. And this is where when I said that you recommended this book to me, and uh, it was right up my alley. About halfway, not even halfway, about a quarter of the way through the book, you begin to discover that Harold von Winkle, the uh, the bad guy, von Vampton, yeah, von, von Vin- is is that yeah, what it yeah. is? Is that yeah, Winkle yeah, von yeah. Vampton? Winkle von, oh, gosh, yeah, and he's based on a real person, Carl van Vechten. A lot of these oh, people are actually based on real people. Yeah, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, totally fucked that up. Cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, but so he's being spied on by his maids and he's sort of, he's standing on this doll of a, of a dog and doing these sort of strange rituals. And you find out very quickly that he's, uh, about a thousand years old. He's a, mm. he's a, he's a Knights Templar from the 11th right. century. Right. And they have been sort of covertly, uh, based on this extensive Egyptian mythological background, they have kind of been in direct opposition to the Jess Grew kind of, uh, not virus, but, but you know, the, right. the thing, right? I, I want to say that it's split between Osiris and Set. How well, about we just is, say the that? Thing, the, thing, the thing, I think the thing that's important to point out is that whole explanation, the Egyptian explanation, doesn't come until at least two-thirds of the way through the book. A good way through the book. So for most of the book, you see you see a lot of things going on, and you know about them, you hear about it's true the Knights Templar, and it turns out that uh, von Vampen is was, you know, has been around at least since the year like 1181, mm-hmm. and his main sort of opponent, um, Papa Labas, who's this black uh, occult detective, he he's of indeterminate age also. You're not quite sure like what's how old he is. So you see all of this stuff happening and you do hear about secret societies and the Knights Templar, but you don't know anything about that whole Egyptian explanation, you know, at all until mm-hmm. well into the book. Right. So I think, like, I think what? the first time, I think the first time I talked to you, I thought that he was astrally projecting into the body of a Knights Templar because that was the best explanation I could come up with before right. I had actually finished the book. But And then the, when you the, get to it, you're like, no, he's that, he's the same guy. Is the, same the, the villains, so to speak, are basically, and it's essentially the Jess Grew carriers, the people who carry the virus, versus the, 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 the JGCs. The JGCs. And the people trying to repress them are basically the Atonist, A T O N I S T S. And I had to do some research myself for that. Um, yeah, yeah, I did too. I, I googled Atonists, and it came up as like <laughs> you know this temple of Aten, like the right. wor- worship of the sun. Worship it all makes sense sun. when you get to it. It all makes right. sense makes, when you get to it. It does go back to ancient Egypt. The first like monotheist supposedly was you know Akhenaten, mm-hmm. who worshipped the sun. One of the Egyptian pharaohs. Um, but his take on the Atonists is first of all it's hilarious because he go he has a he goes through the book and he takes down. Sigmund Freud, another Atonist. Dude, he 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 extensively Milton and Paradise Lost like nothing you've ever read, you know. But but he goes but he goes deep on Freud. The whole epilogue is basically just taking a big shit on Sigmund Freud. It takes a big (laughs) shit. I add Ishmael Reed to the authors. Nabokov is one. I know Roald Dahl is another one who loathe absolutely loathe Sigmund Freud. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. Thinking about different ways that I can kind of approach this, um, I feel like that's that's maybe is uh, what is what are the many so there th- this is kind of a tough question. What's Reed doing here? What are like and and there are about there are about fifteen things I think that he's doing here. Mm. So you'll you'll be excused <laughs> if, I don't if, if you all. don't name all of them. 
But but what are some major sort of things that jump out? So okay. I think people have a basic gist of the plot. You know, there's there's also people who um, there's a subplot about folks who are attempting to steal uh, indigenous artifacts and return them to their home homelands. Mm. It's a there's group called a, the motherfuckers. Right. Yeah, yeah, the Mutafikas. The Mutafikas, <laughs> right. <laughs> they're, they're liberating art, isn't what? Isn't yeah. that what it's called, or something? They yeah, they're, yeah, they're liberating art from the from what is called the center of art detention, center, um, which are essentially museums where right. the Western world, like the United States and Britain, and so have mm -hmm. taken art out of African countries, and the, the so the. You know, the Guggenheim or the Museum of Natural History, these are centers of art detention. That's centers what they're called in the book. Right? Right. There's also uh, subplots about uh, possession. Somebody gets mm -hmm. possessed by a loa, uh, mm -hmm. which, is, which goes into the voodoo stuff. Um, there's kind of extensive amounts of time uh, with uh, the, the villain and his uh, Peter Laurie-esque uh, sidekick, uh, Safe, Safecracker Gould, right? Hubert Safecracker Safe Gould, yeah. Uh, they're basically like they're trying to find something called a talking android mm. and the talking android is essentially going to be a black person probably a black man mm. who can completely undermine uh jess grew by essentially being really lame right, right. by like right. by talking some sense into everybody so, so people... we have about we have about eight 18 threads already that we could follow and which ones stand out? The, when you think of mumbo jumbo, mm -hmm. what comes to mind first? To me, the main, maybe the main two things that come to mind right off the bat, you know, having read it, you know, thought about it, are it's it essentially um, what's the word? Critiques um, and twists the common conception of history, and it. It reinterprets, that's a better word, it reinterprets yeah. history from an Afrocentric point of view. That's not necessarily, not an anti-white sense point of view, but an Afrocentric point of view. That's number one, because he has a very key part in there. It's really funny to read, you know, the way he describes it, where at one point Papa Labas, at some point in the past, met Sigmund Freud. And, and a few times Papa Labas like, was pursuing Sigmund Freud to talk to him try to impart like some knowledge to him and mm -hmm. Sigmund Freud blew him up, kept blowing him off. Kept blowing him off, yeah. And the, the narrator essentially says, which was a big loss to Sigmund Freud, who was too dumb to recognize what he was being told, you know, mm -hmm. he was talking to someone really who had a lot to offer here, a lot to tell him. Yeah. So that already is a, an idea, like it's, because everything, you know, that we've been, you know, you generally read, you know, uh, in traditional, you know, conventional kind of literature is the other way around. You know, it's mm -hmm, Freud mm -hmm. or that kind of person would be the person of wisdom. Here it's Freud's loss that he didn't listen to Papa Labas. So that's one thing. It's sort of reinventing or reinterpreting history from, and this, that is consistent with like returning the art, the art to the, its rightful places, you know, this kind of thing. I also that's like one that you, thing. I like that you mentioned that white people aren't necessarily the villains. So, in in well, the look, book, I mean, white people do horrible things in the book, and they are kind of terrible. But one thing that Reed seems very concerned with is that is that white people they're more cartoonish in their villainry. Like mm -hmm. he's he's sort of very against uh, this kind of um, this kind of uh, misery porn. Of, well, let me or, just let me just connect it to that. Oh, let sure. Me just yeah. Okay. The sure. other thing, and I think that relates to sort of what you're saying in that it's not, it's not an anti-white book per se, is it's very, very strongly against the idea, which is pervasive in Western civilization, certainly of the belief in one. It's a complete attack on monotheism, this book, number one, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. for sure. Totally. Any kind yeah. of monotheism, whether it's mo most of Western civilization, monotheism is Christianity, obviously, uh, but he has a character in here who's also based on a real person. I mean, I did some research on this. Abdul Hamid. Yeah. Uh, that's he just the switched name the names the around, right? Like that's right. like, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the name that this guy takes. He's a black Muslim in Harlem in the 20s. And he's based on somebody who was real named Eugene Brown, who was like a virulent black Muslim anti-Semite in, in New York. He was very well known in the, at the time in the 20s. You can look, you can look him up, as they say. Mm -hmm. um, but... 
Abdul Hamid's also something of a phony because when he's not like in, in public yelling and screaming about things, he talks like a normal person to Papa Labaz and he relax, he calms down and stuff. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. so whether it, but Abdul Hamid as a, is, is, is kind of ridiculed, um, you know, in his, in his sort of belief system, it's the same kind of strict, rigid, regimented, he happens to be Muslim, it could mm -hmm. be Christian, um, and he also, and he keeps contrasting that kind of thinking with essentially Vodun and a belief in the Loas, and there are many Orishas, and there are many gods. And when he mm -hmm. gets into the Egyptian sort of thing at the, that long explanation, he really makes it cameras on that point of like, there was one person, one side that wanted one God and the other side that was accepting of nature and many gods. So that's a major point. Mm -hmm. and, he ha and he carries that over into the political sphere, if you want to say, when he talk when he rips into Marxism, because he says Marxism, he essentially says at one point, Marxist, communist, they basically took, you know, Christianity and just transferred it to religion, to, to politics. They still believe in one. They still mm -hmm. believe in the one. This is the only way. This is the that's a major part of the book is this attack on the idea of one, the one yeah. supreme. And those it, that's a very repressive, atonistic view of the world. And that's a key part, I think, of what he rips into. Then the oneness manifests itself in different ways. Sigmund Freud's a manifestation of that. He has his theory. This is how everything is. It's one way. Because he mentions Jung a few times a little more positively. Jung is kind of a different thing. Right, right. You know. Which he is, yeah. I mean, Which if you look at it historically, yeah, reality, Jung is yeah. Jung is very different. I mean, Jung and Freud broke off from each other. They broke off. Uh, Jung, saw, right. Jung saw Freud as, as a mentor, and then they got to a certain point where, you know, they could no longer communicate. Because Jung had a little Jess Grew in him, and Freud He had a him. lot of Jess Grew in him, dude. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. Yeah. yeah. Jung, is, Jung is like a base Freud, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's interesting, this whole idea of, of oneness, I think that... Um, one of the ways that Abdul becomes sort of one of the main f figures of figures of misguided villainy in the book mm -hmm. is towards the end. Another mm -hmm. major point of the book is that they're all looking for this book of Thoth that is uh, kind of the origination of the of Jeskru. It's this kind right. of arcane, esoteric screed that has been uh, mm. passed down from generation to generation. And so essentially, you know, I guess spoiler alert here for people who want to read the book, but yeah. Abdul essentially burns the book because he feels like the ideas inside of it are too dangerous. And the narrator takes time to excoriate him for doing that, where he says Abdul made the key error of deciding what was best for other people. I don't people. know. Was it, was it Abdul who, who burned the book or was it Hinkle? Yeah. Because Abdul no. had buried the book, and Hinkle found it under the cot in a certain place, longer, and and burned it. It wasn't Hamid who burned it. I'm Hamid pretty sure it was. It. No, I'm I'm pretty sure he ended up. I'm pretty sure that so, Buddy Jackson found it, and he's the one who decided to take it out of that circulation that it was in. Right, right. But Hamid, remember when they get to, when when Papa Labas gets to the scene of the crime and finds Hamid mm -hmm. murdered. Mm -hmm. Hamid had left a clue as to where he buried the book. But didn't but didn't he also I think that when they eventually find a letter that's addressed to Papa Laba after all this is done, he's reading the letter and it's in that letter from Hamid that was written right before his death that he said that he eventually burned it. Uh just to just to be rid of it. I gotta check it again. That's that's interesting. Yeah, see, I'm that's pretty sure that's I'm pretty sure that's what happened. I'm pretty sure that he he writes him a letter, then he gets murdered, and then there's this kind of ongoing gag throughout the book where it's like the mail is slow. The mail is slow. Right, like, right. Oh, hey, here's here's your bills. The mail is slow, and there's a point. It's after the, I think it's after the kind of Egyptian mythology bit towards the very very end. Uh, he gets he gets he finally gets Hamid's letter in the mail and he's like look i decided to to just like to to burn the, the i don't know if he burned the original or if he burned his version or i don't know we'll have to go back on that we got a second <laughs> the thing but no but that's a, either it could, it could be either, either way though it's important to the, like the the um that's another key part of the book though because he mentions very early on in the maybe on page three i mean really early in the book 
that Jess Grew is is in search of a text. So this is yeah, very much right. also a very, in that sense, it's a very, that's another area where it's like a very postmodern book. It's about the search, you know, for a text. It's, it's really about like people trying to, and in the end, the text is not found, but mm-hmm. Jess Grew continues even without right. its text, you know, even without its, uh, which, which again, it ties into like, you know, so many people live by the text, the word, this is a, a spirit that live, that's going to live on without a text, right? Mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. Bible literalists and Muslim, you know, Islamic literalists. You can't be literal when there's not even a text. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's kind of, the, so the, the, like you said, the division between these sort of uh, nature, spirit, voodoo people and, and any, anybody who's monotheistic is essentially the bad guy here. Yeah, and and, and with that all, you mentioned um, there's a point early on in the book where Hamid is talking to Black Herman and Laba at a party, and he's you know he's yelling at them and you know acting very surly. And then mm-hmm. as soon as everybody's outside of the room, he's like, "Look, guys, he calms I, down." Yeah, yeah, he's like, he's like, I don't think that you're bad guys, but listen, the world is moving in this certain direction. And if we want black people to be able to survive in this, they have to be able to have things like discipline. So he's like, so all the misogyny and things like that, that I talk about all this time, like all of that is in service of just keeping people on a straight and narrow path. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that Reed finds has nothing but contempt for that. No, I, right. No, I agree with you completely. Um, Yeah. No, no, no. That kind of sort of like to keep people on the straight and narrow, we have to. That's and and he has consent for that. And no matter um, what form it could, it could be, any kind of person, white, black, whatever, that sort of thinking, um, he loathes. No, there's no doubt about that. Right. Yeah. 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 And he also and he loathes it. And this is these are people who get a lot of hate from Mr. Ishmael Reed. Uh, he hates the critics. He hates the modern art scene. He thinks that they are these sort of keepers of this sort of atonist, uh, like art has to be this one sort of way. You have to read classics. You can't be this, that, or the other. There's a lot. I got to a point in the book uh, about two thirds of the way through where I'm like, oh, he's uh, again, he's kind of pausing the narrative to just to talk about these critics who <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he hates, he hates, but specifically black critics who he views as sellouts, right? Right. He, he seems to have a special kind of ire for not necessarily white people who don't get it, but black people who get it, but choose to sort of still go after these things right. in order to advance. Well, I, I, he, has, he has a couple of targets here and he, you know, the more you read, read of him, the more you see these are common targets. Uh, like the, the Hinkle von Vampton character is based on is based on a real white literary critic at the time, Carl Van Vechten, who mm-hmm. was very influential. You look him up; he's you know he's had a long thing on Wikipedia. Even he was really involved very highly in the arts of the time, and he he was very active in the Harlem Renaissance era, promoting black writers. Actually, he really was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But that's sort of like, you know, I'm a friend of the, of, of uh, you know, the black world, if you want to put it that way. Uh, Reed really like, you know, kind of digs, kind of ridicules here. Mm-hmm, and at the same mm-hmm. time, you're right, like the sort of um, person who is black, but kind of makes, you know, cozies up to sort of the white literar- literary or arts world bourgeoisie to make progress to make hey he really has contempt for and he has some mm-hmm. examples of that in this he has even goes into more examples of that in other books but he has some examples of that in this book like with the the talking android is essentially exactly you know, yeah mm-hmm. uh is a is essentially that um the talk i mean it's funny like i think was it the talking android when he goes for the the sort of work this the work uh, interview says like I read all 494 articles by Marx, by Karl Marx. He said, yeah, this guy's yeah. perfect because, you know, he believed that's an, this guy's perfect because he believes in the one. We can convert him to our cause because he's clearly someone who's going to be like, put him on a path. He just goes straight at it, you know, like a dog. To yeah. The bone, yeah. Right? So that's that's the that's Woodrow Wilson Jefferson, Woodrow Wilson who Jefferson. 
is right. kind of this cowpoke who decides he's going to leave his farm this life behind. He's from. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, which that comes to a very amusing conclusion, by the way. And I was surprised <laughs> that like that was just the conclusion of his arc, right? Right. Um, so he basically moves to the city because he wants to meet uh, Marx and Engels, right? He, right. Th- those are his favorite writers. <laughs> yeah. and, and he's kind of mocked because he doesn't know that they're dead at that point. Um, mm. But he is hired by the villain uh, whose name keeps escaping me? Von Winkel? Winkel? Von Vampton? Yeah. Von Vampton? Hinkle von Vampton. Why is that so hard for me? I don't know. <laughs> uh, von Vampton. So he's hired by him for his magazine called The Benign Monster, which is sort mm. of like the the vice news of its time. It's right. very kind of scandalous. He's He started this newspaper. I was a little unclear about why exactly it had to be racy and all these kind of things. It was, it was an atonist magazine, but it also seemed kind of edgy. So I don't know if that necessarily... Yeah, that's a good fit. question. Um, but or or maybe it, they was he was trying to seduce people through that to get them to read it and then yeah, get the real right. message in. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good sure. question, though. Yeah. yeah. So they hire this guy uh, because they need somebody on staff who's black, who can write for them, who can you know say all these things that they can't say as, as white people. Um, but then they want him to be the talking android, but then there's a problem because you know WW is too black basically. Right. So they think about giving him some skin lightening cream because they kind of want, and that, that ends up coming to a very hilarious kind of head at the end of it when they, they need a talking Android or, uh, Von Vampton's going to be kind of murdered by his, uh, co-conspirators. And so they actually go with, uh, a safe cracker to be safe cracker ghoul. Right. They put they, him, uh, they, they, they put him in black face to be, in- <laughs> to be the talking android who so there's a lot of stuff going on there um right and i think it's worth tying in and i can link this in the in the show notes it's worth tying in that lit hub article you sent me the essay that reed actually wrote about Mm. an author called uh charles s wright and a lot of space in that article is kind of devoted to sort of the difference between this charles s wright character who was in most ways, was very similar to James Baldwin, right? Right. They were alive bisexual. at the same time he, and writing at the same time, like you're talking about in the 60s now, right? Yeah, Basically. right, right, yeah. right, right, right. But how Wright was sort of a character who would hang out with alcoholics and drug addicts, who was himself an alcoholic and drug addict, and James Baldwin. And they were both, and they were both, it's important, he, I think he draws Wright as a comparison too, because they, they, they both were around around the same time. They both were bisexual, so they both had this sort of fluid sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And he points out, like, you know, this is something that only someone like Ishmael Reed or maybe a black writer of some kind could get away with. Because it's mm-hmm. it's a, he wrote this in, this in 2019, so it's very recent. He's 81. He's still angry. He, he writes this article. I love the way he starts the article. Like, Baldwin says, you know, he doesn't even, like, make any introduction. He just, like, gets into it. <laughs> Um, but part, I think, tell me if you agree with me, part of the gist of that article is he basically draws a comparison between, he doesn't get into the writing quality per se, but James Ball, he basically has very little good to say about James Baldwin, which is, uh, right. you know, right. you know, horror of which horror. If I'm, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, they're Baldwin and Wright were both his friends, right? Right. Like they, yeah. like they all yeah. knew each other, but he's kind of writing. He's, he, it kind of feels like something that he was maybe hinting at in mumbo jumbo now that he's 81 and everybody's kind of dead mm. he's sort of he's sort of letting it fly in he's this essay it fly. and yeah. i think the gist of it is kind of like uh essentially james baldwin made you know kinds of kind of a pact you know if you want to put it that way with in order to get where he got in terms of fame and success he had to cozy up to the white literary world. There's no other way he would have got where he yeah. got if he hadn't sort of made, you know, sort of cozied up and made nice with the white literary bourgeoisie. And mm-hmm. Charles Wright never did that. Um, you know, you want to say that phrase that we were talking about that's so funny, like when success, you know, he has this phrase where he says, like, James Charles Wright was the kind of writer when success came knocking at his door, he was never home. Yeah. You know, but, but James, James Baldwin was. He, he was always home when success came. He was He's always, always there to let people in and give them tea and have a drink and be nice and surprise, surprise. He was very successful and everybody idolized him. And, you know, very few people even know who Charles Wright is anymore. And it's not because one was a better writer than the other, right? Right, 
Right, right, yeah. yeah. And I think I think that the kind of vitriol comes through in that article very clearly. He seems extremely frustrated with this idea that that there's still this hierarchy involved and whether or not you are, you know, involving people of color or people who are not, you know, straight white males mm. in in this sort of world, there's still this kind of code that people seem to have to they have to become talking androids. In a mm-hmm, sense. So I right. think his talking Android back all the way back in 1972, I think he was kind of, I think he was, that's what he was saying back then too. Mm-hmm. He was saying, why is nobody paying attention to these people who are, at least to him, and probably I would venture to say to you and I, more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why are we paying attention to these other people? Still good, great writers. Yeah, why, yeah. Do, why do we want people who toe the line? Why do we want people who do this thing the way that the establishment says that it should be done? Why do right. we care? We get why the establishment cares. Well, why but why do we care? Why do we care? Right. right. That's that's right. a very interesting question. Yeah. No, it really is. Um, I think and there are hints in this book. You know, there are lines in this book. I like just open up to one just to give an example where he gives an indication of kind of what stands against sort of the things that he doesn't like. Like he has a, 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 a little passage here uh, in Harlem, I guess. Um, the, inter, the interracial revelers are having a good time. Langston Hughes, writing of this period, said, we liked people of any race who smoked incessantly, drank liberally, wore complexion and morality with loose garments, made fun mm-hmm. of those who didn't do likewise. So you kind of, you know, you get where mm-hmm. he's coming from. Oh, yeah, 100%. That's, that's a great passage to, to exemplify what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't like that kind of rigidity. And that's that's important to point out. Race is a big thing with him in terms of why history's distortions. But it's not an anti this or anti that in that sense. And that's that that's, uh, passage kind of exemplifies that. And we can um, take that all the way up till to today. We can take that up today with people who are very quote unquote woke on social media, who kind mm-hmm. of say all the right things, who have the right skin tone and, you know, sort of play these parts. But you can kind of see behind all of it and realize that their politics are not particularly radical. And besides all that, getting rid of all the politics and all of the saying the correct words, whatever, a lot of these people just don't strike me as particularly fun human beings to hang out with. Right. Reed seems to be like, why can't we all just have a good time? Well, I like, think I've, I've read this in other things that he's read too, one way or another. He definitely doesn't really respect people who can't appreciate a joke or yeah, laugh. Right, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a sign. I, it's not just that you don't have a sense of humor. I mean, that would be, but that's a sign of a kind of almost moral deficiency. If you can't laugh at a lot of things, it means that you're seeing things in too narrow a way. I think, in, yeah. in part, is what Ishmael Reed is saying. Right. Um, he's, I mean, another thing, another part, like you, you were talking before about, um, um, you know, that sort of like the sort of, um, you know, misery porn uh, that, you know, a lot of, he has a, a whole a, a passage in here where he said, like, one thing I think that's, he gets at and it's connected to fiction is, he talks in, in, in Mumbo Jumbo, there's some passage where he mentions something about, uh, you know, all of, all of the uh, suffering and injustice of history have made a lot of black people and black men and stuff and black people bitter and angry, yeah. you know, ob- with good reason. You know, understand with good reason, sure. Yeah. But the it's taken away a sense of humor. It's taken away lightness. It's taken away liveliness. Um, and it, when it comes to art, how does that translate? You know, he has this thing where he talks about, and you can see his contempt for a certain kind of writing. It translates into, like, everybody is writing in this site. He mentions it. He says specifically, he turned everybody into social realists, and you just got the image of a black man on a stoop in misery with his head in his hands, sitting sitting, looking miserable. That's right. the image that has pervaded through history, and that's what... That, and he, and he kind of criticizes black people for, like, buying into that image, and writers and artists who like, there's only one kind of real like African-American art, black art, and that has to be the art of social realism, misery, we mm-hmm. suffer, it's mm-hmm. terrible. Uh, and Mumbo Jumbo and his books in general are kind of an answer to that. Of course you can be angry and of course you can talk about all the shit that's happened, 
but you don't have to toe the, toe the line aesthetically in this very simplistic, straightforward, traditional, boring way. That I think is probably what he's saying. And I wonder if you contrast the idea of, we'll just go with misery porn because it's an easy term yeah. to use. If you contrast misery porn with something like Jess Grew. Mm-hmm. So Je- Jess Grew is the good guy in this book, basically. Right. And it is that kind of lively spark amongst uh, particularly black culture that leads to innovation, leads to great art, great music, all of these yeah. things, right? Mm. And so it's almost interesting that what he's saying, especially when you when you take the just screw, you take the talking Android, you take everything that you just said, when you focus specifically on black people's pain, black people's pain is kind of the only thing of those three things that I just mentioned that white people had a hand in. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the misery stuff is a way to relate to white people because it's including them in this dichotomy of the story itself. And when when you take white people out, when you do something that's entirely in slang, that is completely particular to black culture. When you talk about, you know, jazz, all these things. That, I mean, and of course, there were white people who were yeah, interested yeah, no, in these things. Course. But you see where I'm going with this. But I think when, you hit it. I you hit the nail on the head because let me because I found that passage, and it, you, you're exactly right. I think because his point is it's a passage where he's talking about um, at one point Papa Labas. Um, is winds up in this uh, sort of room, and there's all of this original African sculpture in the room uh-huh. and he's looking at it right. and he talks about how the these sculptures which you know ostensibly are from Africa are hilarious are funny this, this, this was in this was in Hamid's room this is in Hamid's room yeah, yeah. it's in Hamid's room right? which shows Hamid is not a complete asshole basically that's right. true right. yeah the African race had quite a sense of humor in North America under Christianity many of them have been reduced to glumness depression surliness, cynicism, malice without artfulness. Mm. Um, and their intellectuals, this is the point, and their intellectuals in America only appreciated heavy, serious works. They'd yes. really fallen in love with tragedy. Their plays were about bitter, raging members of the nuclear family. And their counterpart in art was exemplified by the contorted, grimacing, painful social realist face. Somebody, head in hand, sitting on a stoop. Oh, Lord! You know, that's what he <laughs> yeah, writes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But right. before that, in Africa, you know, it wasn't like life was was heaven on earth, but people, the art produced had a lot of humor before it got crushed down. And this is the result of what we see now, you know. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that people have when they talk about issues of appropriation, which we don't have to get too deep into, I'm just mm-hmm. bringing it up to bring up the idea that, you know, I've heard this said by by very many smart writers. When if a white person wants to write a science fiction book mm. about space aliens, mm. okay, go right ahead. But when a black person wants to write a book about space aliens, the publishers ask them, "So, can this be about somebody who's talking to space aliens and also about what it's like to be black?" Uh, right? Yeah, right. So there's good. always well, this, there's always this kind sure of Octavia Butler and Samuel the Lady were asked that question. So you're of right. Of course they were. Of course they yeah. were. Because the whole thing is that this white publishing establishment is very much concerned with okay, so how do we continuously relate this black or <laughs> relate this black? Talk about a Freudian slip. There we go. Yeah. Uh, relate this back to white people and mm. that's what reed's getting at i really do think that that's what reed's getting mm-hmm. at. he's mm-hmm. like if, if you have to cut that out completely and get to this kind of creative source of just joy there are plenty of uh white novels written by white people i almost said white novels that sounds gross but novels <laughs> yeah. written by white people mm-hmm. that are about whatever the hell they want to write about and yeah. that's great that's awesome right. that's fantastic black people have to get to that point too is what reed is saying and every time they try to, they're kind of stamped out by these tragedy narratives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, I mean, I know he, that's a recurring theme, I think, in his criticism. Like, there's a reason, I mean, I guess there are many reasons, but I one thing I got from, like, the, the piece in Litho about Baldwin and Charles Wright, because at the end of the piece, he has a, a good anecdote about, Richard Pryor, who apparently Ishmael knew pretty well, it seems like, from what gave he's talking about. He gave him the boot. He gave he, him the boot. He said, get and the fuck out of here. 
<laughs> which is something I know. And Richard Pryor seemed like he had respect. He get a lot of respect for him. But um, he mentions how, like Charles, he basically says Charles Wright was doing Richard Pryor in books before Richard Pryor did Richard Pryor. Which uh, mm-hmm. we got we got to read Charles Wright to see. I, but that's I, high I praise. Bought the, I bought the collective not the collective novel. I, I know. So I'm going to order I, it tonight. I will be the judge of that. Ooh, look at me. <laughs> Look yeah. out, everybody. JDO but, is going to have an opinion. <laughs> but I think he's contrasting, at that level at least, Baldwin, who is more into the serious, you know, sort of, he's more than a ha- man sitting on a stoop, obviously, head in his hand. I don't think Ishmael would say that. But he does represent a kind. You think of Baldwin, you think serious, you know, on the sure. basic level. And Charles Wright sounds like he's clearly serious, but he's very funny. And he's very, if he compares him to Pryor, you know, he's got to be, and I think he's getting, um, that's another recurring theme is like how, right, like you said, how the art has been, this has been, this, this has to be changed. It's not always about, I know, I mean, he'd be caught a lot of flack at one point, you know, Ishmael Reed for, he had almost like a kind of feud going with Alice, uh, Alice Walker, who he really didn't like. At oh, all, wow. I don't think. Okay. All right. Uh, and I, some of it was because I, from what I understand, from what I've read, you know, I remember it a little bit at the time was, you know, as he saw it, rightly or wrongly, but this was, was, there was this whole, like, the white, let's put it this, the sort of white literary establishment, feminist literary establishment, was very, like, let's get on board with, like, Alice Walker, because Mm -hmm. in particular, she's really beating up on black men. Mm -hmm. And Ishmael Mm -hmm. Reed was like, you're just, like, making, you know, I think he called those writers, like, yellow writers. Yellow, Mm -hmm. like, she's black, but she's, yeah. They're they're making, they're, they're sort of, like, you know, making their reputation and getting all the success specifically on the on the backs of a certain group. And they're doing it by like palling up to, you know, the white literary establishment, which is what promoted her. Right. You know, that doesn't mean the book's right. good or bad. I don't know if I can, yeah. but he, you know, he's taken some pretty gutsy stands like them or not over the year and fought with all these fought with everybody and stuff like that. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, so. We are now uh, at at 50 minutes. I'm going to say that this will be the end of part one. Are you down no, to we'll talk more about the note. book? Okay. Are you down to talk more? No, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I can just We got to talk I, about with, how, at the very least, remind us, did you have any idea, last thing, when you read this book, that it was a common rumor at the time that Warren Harding might be black? And he was like, you know, maybe he was the first black president before Barack Obama. Did you know no, that before you read this? I, I did not know that, but let's leave that as a teaser. <laughs> yes, let's leave that and as a teaser. And we will see you next week.